Welcome to Done With Debauchery, a podcast hosted by Denise and Keisha, two friends who share intimate conversations about alcohol and drug use, struggling with sobriety, and our personal paths to wellness. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to episode four of Done With Debauchery. I'm Keisha and this is my co-host Denise. Hello. On today's episode, we're talking about gray area drinking. This is a pretty new term that's been popping up over the last few years, and we're here to tell you where this term came from, what it means, and so much more. Let's get into it. I first heard the term gray area drinking while watching a TED talk by Jolene Park a few years ago. Jolene is a functional nutritionist and health coach in Colorado who stopped drinking in 2014. We'll include the link in our show notes if you want to check it out. When I first heard Jolene explain what gray area drinking was, my ears perked up, and I wondered if she could be talking about me. Jolene describes gray area drinking as the space between the extremes of rock bottom and every now and again drinking. This is the gray area which can negatively impact lives. She goes on to tell us that in her personal experience, she didn't have a rock bottom moment, and we don't have to either. She knew that looking at her life from the outside, her drinking didn't look problematic, but from the inside looking out, she knew it was a problem for her. I feel like I identified with her so much in that moment. I had already been questioning my habits and relationship with alcohol and wondering how much is too much. I didn't feel like I fell under the category of alcoholic, but I did feel like maybe the label of gray area drinker was a fit. Denise, do you feel like you identify with either of those labels? Yeah. Well, when we started talking about uh, this episode for this podcast, that was actually my introduction to the idea of gray area drinking. And I personally resonate with that so much. Um, I think some of the the characteristics that really kind of hit the nail on the head for me would be uh, just like that in-between area of of not just having a casual drink once every few weeks and also not drinking every single day and being physically dependent, but mm-hmm. being somewhere in the middle, but also lacking that control and moderation um, and thinking about alcohol a substantial amount. So... I know when we all think of the word alcoholic, we all probably have an image that comes to mind of that village drunk, for lack of a better descriptor, (laughs) or someone who has lost something significant, like their job, or possibly their home, or, and it's just like hit that absolute rock bottom where their life is absolutely imploded in and on itself. Yeah. And that's also not something that I associate with, and... Um, I don't think a lot of drinkers do. I think it's a smaller percentage of the population that is at that extreme. And I think many, many more are kind of in this in-between stage. And definitely in our demographic, in the neighborhoods we live in and the places that we go to, that that general label of alcoholic really, I think, isn't a fit for, for a lot of the women that we're coming into contact with who are questioning their drinking and even before recording today's episode, you actually let me know that the, the label alcoholic is no longer the correct term for somebody who is 
struggling with alcohol use. Yeah, so upon doing some research today, like the DSM, uh, which is like the manual for psychological diagnoses, um, now identifies it as alcohol use disorder. So I believe you know, alcoholism in its traditional sense, I mean, it's not a term that's used anymore, would be on the, the you know, the far end of the spectrum mm-hmm. for alcohol use disorder. And something like gray area drinking would fall on like a more mild or moderate, you know, part of the scale for alcohol use disorder. So, um, you know, alcohol use disorder is now the medical term that's used to, I guess, qualify or understand yeah. how people, um, you know, are struggling with that. Yeah, and personally, like when I think of someone who is labeling themselves as an alcoholic or struggling with alcohol use disorder, you automatically go to an extreme. An extreme, extreme. and like it kind of feels like the only place where you can go to go for help is somewhere like AA, which I like personally. Like I, my first actually introduction to AA was through Al-Anon, which is its sort of sister company. Mm. I don't know if it's considered a company, but it's sister program where it's meant to support people who actually have alcoholics or people struggling with alcohol use disorder in their lives. And it's more for the family members of friends of people being impacted. And it's not just alcohol related though. I think Al-Anon is for all substance use, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. narcotics as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and then... F- from there, it, it was truly, truly a little shocking for me to hear some of the stories that people were sharing. And it just sort of solidified even more for me that I don't identify with that label. So then to go from that experience to an actual AA meeting, which I went to my first one early in the pandemic through Zoom, which definitely felt a little bit less scary than going in person somewhere. But again, like, it just really didn't feel like a fit for me. Yeah, I have a really hard time with the way that AA applies the label. Um, And it's a really hard pill for me to swallow that you're an alcoholic and that is something that you actively have to manage and a label you have to accept for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. moving forward. It just... It, it doesn't seem like there's any freedom in that for me. It feels very um, constrictive. And as we were just saying, like when we all have this vision of what an alcoholic is in our mind, there's just so much stigma. Yeah. And I think even when you tell people like, you know, when you're out and you're not drinking and somebody's like persistent and still wants you to drink and you throw out something like, oh, I can't have a drink. I'm an alcoholic just to get someone to yeah. back off. Like, just the fact that they back off and and don't, like, keep pushing the issue goes to show how society also really takes that word. It's not just yeah. people who, you know, drink that have this negative connotation. It just does have so much extremity to it. So, for me, right off the get-go with the AA meeting, <laughs> the fact that you have to introduce yourself and identify with a label before even navigating your relationship with yeah. substances was just really brushed me the, the the wrong way. And the fact that it's something that you have to accept for the rest of your life moving forward 
was really difficult. I do think, though, that they do a lot of things very well, like mm-hmm. establishing a sense of community. You know, it's obviously Definitely. available free of charge. And, you know, there is so many meetings. So for people that maybe do have that physical dependence, which is, I think, uh, a big identifier of alcoholism versus gray area drinking... Mm-hmm is that they can have, like, the continual support that they need. At while no cost, which yes. is so important Multiple to times so a day. Many. Yeah. 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 And, like, you know, when you're working with a therapist or going a less traditional route, there are lots of situations and triggers that you encounter where you don't have, like, a sponsor or somebody that's available right at that moment all the time that can talk you down from the ledge yeah i mean we have each other which which can be successful yeah but also also if it's your friend you're like fuck off yeah (laughs) yeah and i think too like with with drinking alcohol is the one drug or substance that when you actually stop using it you still have to keep that label alcoholic whereas if you're an active heroin user in that moment you're the addict but then once you stop using you're no longer a heroin addict no with aa though if you go into an na meeting um it you do still identify as an addict like you'd be like hi i'm denise i am an alcoholic and an addict or a Mm. drug addict I don't think people identify the substance, but I Got do it. think that the whole like AA umbrella is that you know once you're an addict, like you will be managing that for for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I guess part of that is like to just say that you know you could relapse down the road. I guess at any time. Again, though, that's another term that I could probably do a whole <laughs> other episode on is this like word relapse um, yeah. because I think it also has such a, a stigma stigma to it as well it makes you feel like you've gone back to square one and that's yeah. not necessarily the the case so i guess then my my question would be do you feel like having a label or a title like gray area drinker or alcoholic is actually helpful or can it be hurtful when you're trying to get sober well labels i think are helpful in terms of just relating and identifying and Mm. maybe challenging your beliefs and views when you look at something to just say, hey, is this an issue? Is is this out of the ordinary? I think it really, for me, is helpful in cueing curiosity and then hopefully taking that curiosity and being like self-aware and self-reflected with it and, and deciding what's right for me. What I don't think is helpful about labels is these the stigma that comes along with them and also the risk of the possibility of a self-fulfilling prophecy so oh yeah like let's say we use some very addictive substances as an example with something like heroin or crystal meth or something like that where it's it's quite quite addictive and i do believe that some people have environments and you know physiological things within their body that make them more at risk to be a long-term addict but you know, if somebody tells you, like, only, I don't even know what the stats are, 5% of people, you know, get out of heroin before they OD and die, and 95% of people do not, you might be somebody who believes you're you're stuck in that cycle forever just because you've had this label applied to you and, and been given some, you know, Western medical statistics that you're likely going to fail. So I think that's where labels for me can get really, really dangerous. And, you know, I think people make assumptions and stereotypes in regards to labels that are applied to people. And that can be harmful in terms of, 
jobs, relationships, you know, people living up to their potential. Yeah. I like what you said about using the label to, to identify the problem. So I think that that definitely can be important, like putting a name to what you're dealing with. And like from there, then you can sort of categorize and solve how you want to go apart, go about, <laughs> go about <laughs> finding whatever help makes the most sense for you. But I do think that, yeah, Putting, an, putting a face to the name or a label to the problem can definitely be advantageous. Yeah. So do you have a personal experience or time or feeling where drinking kind of started to shift and become mm. not no longer okay for you? Yeah, I think f- for me, it's... It's a collection of many little things. Mm. There wasn't one defining moment, but more like several, (laughs) I think. And again, like we go back to like, there was no huge rock bottom. I never got a DUI. I never harmed anyone. But it was that internal feeling that just my choices were just not sitting well. And I wasn't liking who I was when I was drinking. Um... I started drinking and experimenting with drugs around probably the age of 15. Uh, I started doing bottle service when I was 19. So for, for as long as I can remember, I've been in an environment that encourages drinking and drug use and normalizes it and normalizing it, encouraging it, making a profit off of it. So for so long, it was a part of my identity. Um, so I think that sort of, I got out of the club scene and, the drinking continued in our careers with real estate as well. It was very heavily focused around going out for dinners, going out for drinks, entertaining clients, developers. Um, so always, always very heavily focused on alcohol. So I think that over time I just started to get like that anxiety and it just became so much part a part of my routine that... I just, I was always feeling shitty. I was never operating at 100% because I never really was having a good night's sleep. I would be eating, I would want to eat fast food, eating things that don't make me feel good. At 2 a.m. Yeah, at 2 a.m. <laughs> then the next day, because I was hungover and I didn't have a good sleep the night before, again, I wanted to eat shitty. So I was gaining weight. I was realizing that I was doing this career that I wasn't necessarily passionate about. Um, so yeah, for me, it was a, a collection of little moments. Mm. What about you? Yeah, I, I can relate with that collection of, of little moments, but it, I feel like it was also like a snowball running down mm. the hill. And so yeah. it started as almost like, um, you know, you'd go out and you would binge drink yeah. and the next day, you know, I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, shit, I wish I didn't say that to that person or like, would just be like uncomfortable maybe with the way that I behaved or yeah. would feel so physically horrible that I was unable to w- work at the capacity that I should be able to. And yeah. sure, did I still get up and go to work and get what I needed to get done? Yeah. But was it, was it at 110%? No. Yeah. And so there was like that, that little nudge and I'll be honest, I think that little nudge really started for me a long time ago. And, and it it was like when I was in my mid twenties, um, there was some like quite a bit of binge drinking. Again, I was also at that time when I was in university, I guess that's like early twenties, 
um, working in a nightclub. And so we would also be going out always partying after yeah. we would close at the nightclub. And so it was just such, it seemed normal to be binge drinking all the time. And I met some friends that didn't drink that way. And we went out to a concert and I was just totally like blackout wasted and got thrown out of the concert. Oh, shit. And they had a whole conversation with me about my behavior the next day. And I was shocked because everyone yeah. else that I would be around had like that would be normal behavior and that was I think the first like pivotal moment where I was like whoa um you know maybe something is off here yeah but it was like again like that that happened and then you know there were many many binge drinking experiences that didn't feel good the next day or even that night or the next week where I continued to just like push it down and yeah. probably used drinking and doing drugs to not deal with the fact that that discomfort in my behavior was there to be really honest because making a decision or confronting at you know in your 20s that you don't want to drink the way that all of your friends do or go to these nightclubs or I don't even think I would have been able to bartend because yeah. it was like taking shots was like part of your bartending job as a girl. Me like, too. <laughs> trying to be cute. Yeah. Um, I don't think I had the capacity to follow through on some of those changes. So I also feel like becoming more self-aware through like meditation and breathwork and therapy yeah. and just doing like a lot of personal work on what's right for me and what's not and getting really clear on those things started to make my drinking and substance use intolerable. Like the next day when I would wake up, I would just be beside myself uh, in disappointment and self-hatred. Self-loathing. Yeah. I, like, I get that too. And so, and like the physical symptoms that I thought I could like handle as a hangover, like I would just be, I couldn't anymore. And so that's, I would say over the last year been... Uh, like noise that I can no longer ignore like it's gotten mm -hmm. too loud like it's shouting within me so like even having small amounts of alcohol now I feel like just really doesn't sit with me anymore and I think one of the huge things that I like I, I hate to admit is that the the cocaine used with alcohol I think uh, was huge uh, just in terms of working for, in nightclubs for me and even in high school growing up and really carried over into that same binge drinking lifestyle through my career as well. And again, like, I don't think this means like, you know, you're using cocaine every day, like you're using yeah. it sporadically, but it is, I think something that's very much around and available when you're in that party nightclub scene, especially in a big urban environment. And what would happen is that every time I would binge drink after a few drinks, like, if, if it was available, I was, I was interested. Yeah. And the repercussions of that are even more physically and mentally intolerable for me. Yeah. And what I started to think was that even if there was a small risk that my drinking would lead to cocaine use, and after three drinks, there is a, there's a risk if I'm around those people. It just like was no longer a risk that I could take. And the only way that I knew how to like 100% guarantee that I would not do cocaine is to remove alcohol. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. But at least you could recognize that. And even what you said about like it wasn't every day. And for me too, like that was like one red flag that I definitely noticed 
as my drinking continued, even over the last like year or two, like it started as heavy drinking, going out, binging, mm-hmm. also doing cocaine, then being out for the count for a couple of days, not performing in my job or relationships at an ideal level. But then for me, even through the pandemic, like it did honestly turn into like drinking at home and like drinking alone and First, it started as one glass of wine or two glass of wine glasses when I'm making dinner. And it did escalate to a point where like I was having a bottle of wine to myself on a regular basis in the evening because during the pandemic, what it felt like what else was there for me to do? And that's when I think for me, that alarm really started going off. And like I found myself Googling online am I an alcoholic? Can I take this quiz? And is it going to tell me, am I an alcoholic? Like, yeah, for me, that that was definitely a pivotal point during the pandemic as well. But I think also that affected so many other people where all of a sudden we are at home, we're working from home, we're feeling isolated. Everything has turned virtual, including our hangouts with our friends. We're having virtual cocktail nights. Nowhere to go tomorrow morning. Nope. Like, roll to the couch and turn (laughs) on your computer. I know, like, you and I were a part of a virtual wine tasting, like, early in the pandemic. I feel like a few of them, actually. And they got fucking crazy. Like, (laughs) I think we stayed up till 4 a.m. on one Like, it was almost worse than being together (laughs) physically. But I think that just shows you, like... If you are vulnerable to drinking to excess or binge drinking Mm -hmm. or let's just say addiction, adding stressful factors like uh, more disconnection, isolation, uncertainty, you know, all the stress that COVID layered on top of us really can escalate something that's not quite a problem yet, but might be like bubbling at that problematic level. And I really relate to everything that you said about COVID. And and I think when you just look at like the LCBO sales, I mean, that's our Ontario liquor board for those of you that aren't from Ontario, (laughs) but I think they've skyrocketed throughout COVID. So, you know, it's, it's not a secret that people's drinking has increased, um, you know, over the pandemic. And even when the entire country, province, world, whatever, was on lockdown, alcohol sales never stopped because people are so dependent, both emotionally, physically, psychologically, on alcohol that that gravy train just had to keep running. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they. I don't even think they ever considered closing that down. And I don't it was, think they could. Uh, no. It would have also... <laughs> There would be riots. <laughs> Actually, there would be riots. I have a girlfriend who works um, for the LCBO um, in corporate, and she said that there are so many people who are physically dependent on alcohol that if they were to close the the availability of liquor to people, that would have just contributed to more people being in the hospital because of that physical dependency. They would have been going through physical withdrawal symptoms and wouldn't have been able to manage it on their own. Yeah, and I I think it just goes to show that it's, like, such a slippery slope when conditions change. So I, in my late 20s, early 30s, uh, completely abstained from all drinking and drug use for over a year. And um, I slowly started to try to moderate and bring alcohol back into my life um, in, in my early 30s. And what was really interesting for me over the pandemic is that I started to get very concerned because my behavior in terms of the way that I was using substances, alcohol, cocaine, 
even cigarettes, I don't even smoke, which like, which is crazy, was, was like on this slippery slope going back towards where it was in my 20s prior to me um, being fully abstinent for a couple years. And I was, I was really scared about that. Um, it's not a place that I would want to go back to. And it, and it was just interesting because the, it was the conditions. Yeah. Um, but it goes to show that you are maybe still wired and vulnerable um if if you're predisposed to that i'm not sure i guess that's like a a biological yeah. <laughs> versus environment uh psychological kind of debate but but yeah i think it's definitely a stress response like when there's so many things going on not only in your life but in the world that are completely outside of your control it, it gets to a point where you're just trying to cope like you're just trying to get through every day and at some point like i know for me like sometimes I just want to dissociate. Like I just want to shut off, shut down and just not, not know what the fuck is happening. <laughs> and I think that's something that Jolene talks about in, in her Ted talk is wanting that off switch. And I think that's something we can all relate to, whether it's during COVID or, or not coming home from a long day work. Like, you know, even if you're a stay at home mom and you're with the kids all day or like, it's just that like, break or that mm -hmm. removal and we have been so conditioned to use something outside of ourselves yeah. to hit that off button instead of finding ways to like regulate our nervous system and soothe ourselves um and decrease our stress responses in in more healthy wholesome ways there are many different classifications we use to identify different types of drinkers these can range from gray area drinking binge drinking or alcohol use disorder you may identify with one or none, but you don't need to label yourself or hit rock bottom in order to reevaluate or end your relationship with alcohol. If you feel like your relationship with alcohol is problematic, it probably is to you, and that's really all that matters. We're working on putting together a list of resources that we've found useful. If you'd like to receive it, follow us on Instagram at donewithdebauchery or share your email address with us on our website www.donewithdebauchery.com This is Keisha and Denise signing off on another episode of Done With Debauchery. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share and subscribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Done With Debauchery. See you next time.